Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, January 23rd. It's primary day in New Hampshire. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, you're on location today for the pod. I am Moshe. I have been doing some freelance anchoring for Newsday TV for the past few days, and I'm here today as well. I have received some messages from some Mo News listeners that were like, don't go anywhere. Don't do too good of a job. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. <laughs> just moonlighting, I'm, just moonlighting. And uh, th- for those of you unfamiliar, Newsday is sort of Long Island's local news source. That's right, Mosh. And Long Island has millions of people on it. And Mosh, you and I always talk about kind of like the demise of local news and right. how it's it's really bad for democracy. It's bad for residents. So I love covering local news and think it's incredibly important. And speaking of very important local news, (laughs) if you are in the New York area, you might have noticed that the sun set after 5 p.m. Monday night. And by March, the sun will be setting after 7 p.m. So ah, light at the end of the tunnel. Literal, literal light, folks. Uh, we're, We're leaving slowly but surely the doldrums of winter, though, you know, there's gonna be some cold in store here and uh, lighter days are on the way. All right, Mosh, time for the news. It is primary day in New Hampshire, and it's looking like Donald Trump could have another big victory. What we're watching as far as results and New Hampshire's Democrats are also voting. But President Biden is not on the ballot. We'll explain. Here's something you probably never thought you would hear. The U.S. is producing more oil right now than any country in history. Yeah, it's something Republicans and Democrats aren't talking about. But we are here on the podcast. We'll explain Crisis at the border, the Supreme Court clearing the way for border agents to remove that wire barrier installed by Texas. Overseas, there are reports that Israel is proposing a two-month pause in fighting for the release of all the hostages in Gaza. And it comes as families of some of those hostages storm Israel's parliament meeting to demand their loved ones return. In Germany, more than a million people demonstrating against right-wing extremism in that country. In business news, the FAA now suggesting the inspection of additional older Boeing jets after the Alaska Airlines incident. And year-end bonuses shrinking 21%, a sign perhaps of trouble in the U.S. economy. And Mosh, families are apparently embracing something called scruffy hospitality. Should we all join the trend? This has nothing to do with like facial hair. Scrap. That's that's an issue. What I thought, and then I read the story and realized that it has more to do with uh, all of us who try to throw everything in a closet before people come over. We'll explain. And Moshe's on this day in history. Jill, an important moment as the uh, first woman in American history received her medical degree on this day. Also a big day for a couple of the biggest musical hits of the 1980s. Jill, one of your favorite decades. I don't know if it's the 80s or the 90s, but it's like they're both up there, right? Well, I was thinking yesterday when you said that Ron DeSantis peaked the day that he announced that he was running for president. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I I can relate. Peaking too early. Okay, starting with politics, today is the New Hampshire primary and two new polls out Monday point to a big win for former President Trump on the GOP side. So he has been slowly increasing his lead over former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. In one poll by Suffolk University and the Boston Globe, Trump led Haley by 19 points, 57 percent to 38 percent. 
And that mirrors the results of a different poll by Monmouth University and The Washington Post, which shows that Trump is leading Haley by 18 points, 52 percent to 34 percent. In that poll, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has 8 percent of the vote. He, of course, dropped out of the race on Sunday, and many of his supporters are expected to get behind Trump. So what makes New Hampshire a bit different from Iowa and other primary states is that there are a lot of independent voters and they are able to vote in either the Republican or the Democratic primary, whichever one they choose. And they can also make the decision on Election Day itself. So that is expected to play to Haley's advantage. In one of those polls we just mentioned, Haley has a 10-point lead amongst independents, whereas registered Republicans prefer Trump three to one. So, Mosh, no one thinks Haley is going to win the New Hampshire primary, not even her campaign. So the question is, how close does she have to get um, in order for her to stay in this race? Yeah, it's when we talk about campaigns, we talk about primaries, it's all about expectations, setting the expectations for the media, for the voters, for the donors, and then ideally hitting or surpassing that result. So while a month ago, the Haley people would have said, we can win New Hampshire, a week ago, they said, we'll come in a close second. In recent days, they said, listen, we're going to do better in New Hampshire than we did in <laughs> Iowa. So you've seen the changing expectations there when it comes to the Haley campaign. Because, again, they're trying to manage the expectations of the media so they could be in this uh, for the long run. The issue she has is, you mentioned, she's got an advantage among independents. Are there enough of them, given his three-to-one Republican advantage? He also leads, uh, has a huge lead among men in the state. It's pretty uh, even right now when it comes to women. She might have a slight advantage among women in New Hampshire. But again, given that his margins are larger, that's her major problem. And so while we're only on the second state here, right, there's 48 more states to go. uh, The question is optics into the next big battle. If she loses by more than double digits, let's say that, you know, the, the Trump lead is closer to 20. It'll be hard for her to make an argument that she should continue to stay in this race. And that's an argument, again, not made to me and you or people listening to this podcast, to her donors saying, give me millions and millions and millions of more dollars to fight Donald Trump. I can definitely beat him at some point. Why will people be asking that hard question if she uh, goes down? Well, one, New Hampshire sort of has that independent spirit. So if she can't win there, that's the state where John McCain won against George W. Bush. Uh, They tend to do their own thing in New Hampshire. If she can't win there, where is she going to win? Well, next month in South Carolina, that's her home state, right? She was governor there for six years. Well, she's getting right now in the polls, there's like a 30 plus point lead for Donald Trump in her home state. So then she has to go back to her home state where she was born and raised, where she was governor uh, and prove she's willing to fight there and potentially risk a very embarrassing defeat in her home state where the argument will go. Well, they know her best. She was their governor, and they don't want to vote for her. So is she willing to risk that? That's something, by the way, DeSantis was not willing to risk next month in Florida. When Florida votes, he's like, I'm getting out now. I'm the governor of this state. I can't be embarrassed by Donald Trump in my own state. Will Nikki Haley go there? So I think there's a question is, if it's a single-digit victory for Trump, she has an argument, and she's got some big donor meetings, some fundraising meetings lined up soon. If it's double-digit lead for Trump, She's going to have a difficult case to be made. Now, again, she's the only alternative. He has all the legal issues. There's a, you know, five months left. She says that, you know, he's losing his marbles, right? Uh, She's been making the cognitive argument against him. Does she just hang out? That's, by the way, why uh, campaigns suspend campaigns. They don't end campaigns. They suspend it. If you suspend it, you can turn it back on again. So will she suspend it? And then if something happens, you know, sort of uh, that none of us can conceive of uh, in the spring, would she then light it up again? 
Who knows? But this is the thing we're seeing in recent days. You're seeing the momentum in Trump's favor. You're seeing endorsements start to come in from Capitol Hill, including members of Congress, including senators, who, by the way, after January 6th said, he's done. I'm done with him. I'm over him. Well, now in the past week, they're like, all right, so we're going to endorse him. Uh, I'm in favor of him this year because they see the writing on the wall and they know that if he's the party's nominee, they're going to have to work with him. So they're coming around to endorse him. And you're seeing those uh, more and more on Capitol Hill from senators, from members of Congress. And so she'll be fighting against that momentum as well, because they're all going to say to Haley, listen, we got to unite. We got to unite in this fight against Biden. Let's do it sooner than later. Okay, so then there's also now the Democratic side. We have been getting a ton of questions about what is happening in terms of the Democratic race in New Hampshire. And the short answer is it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when Facebook gave that relationship status option. It's complicated. That's (laughs) That's exactly what's going on. That's where we're at. Yes. So basically, the DNC switched up the primary calendar this year, making South Carolina the first primary state. And that is because they think it's more representative of the Democratic Party, just in terms of demographics. And we should mention, we're coming off of 2020. Biden didn't win New Hampshire. Biden won South Carolina and is largely president due to South Carolina. So he's effectively rewarding the state and recognizing that uh, given how diverse the party is these days, that South Carolina should be going first. Okay, New Hampshire, not into this. So instead of saying, okay, we'll play ball, we'll vote whenever you want us to, they are refusing to comply with the new schedule. And their state law actually says that the New Hampshire primary needs to be at least seven days before any other state. They've had the nation's first primary since the 1920s. Yeah, this means a lot to them up there. So in response to that, the Biden campaign didn't put his name on the ballot in the state, but some lesser known challengers did. So I'm talking about people like Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, Marion Williamson, So, Moshe, hence the conundrum now for President Biden. Right. So today, New Hampshire voters will go to the polls, including on the Democratic side. By the way, you mentioned Marianne Williamson. She's the self-help guru that ran back in 2020. She's running again this cycle, not getting that much attention, but she's out there. And so uh, basically the DNC and the White House put New Hampshire in timeout. They're like, listen, you guys didn't abide by our rules. We came up with a new schedule. You refuse. No primary. Your primary doesn't matter. But they're still holding it. Right. And so... At the same time, the White House is like, oh, well, that would be really embarrassing if the sitting president loses a primary state. We won't like the media narrative. People will start to ask questions about the president. What's going on? Because 99.9% of Americans, including people in New Hampshire, are like, wait, what's going on? What do you mean our primary doesn't matter? Why is Biden not on the ballot? You know, and in an era of conspiracy theories, there's going to be a lot of them out there when, in fact, it's just a dispute over ballot schedule, over primary schedule. So the White House effectively is like, what are we going to do? So some Democrats, officially unrelated to the White House, have been launching a write-in campaign for Joe Biden. So you might see these signs around New Hampshire, write-in Joe Biden, because basically they want him to win. Now, again, it's sort of like your ex, like New Hampshire's your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend. They're dating somebody new. You don't care, but you sort of care. If you're the White House, you're like, wait, who are they dating? What's going on over there? And so um, ultimately, the White House doesn't want the storyline that a sitting president loses a primary. At the same time, they're like, well, New Hampshire doesn't matter anyway, because like we've changed the schedule. So they have this right end campaign. And so keep an eye on the spin. 
the White House might be like, look, we didn't even run and we won the write-in campaign. Like, people love Joe Biden. What, what was all the commotion about? And by the way, if Dean Phillips can get close or it doesn't like it looks like a small margin and it's an embarrassing number for Biden, they're like, well, we didn't even try. It was a write-in campaign. We weren't even on the ballot. So that's just one thing to watch for in the spins tomorrow. By the way, you mentioned Dean Phillips. He's probably the most serious challenger to Joe Biden. He's a sitting congressman, a Democrat from Minnesota. Effectively, on the issues, uh, he doesn't really argue with Biden. His argument is Biden is too old. And notably, Dean Phillips has gotten some money behind him, and he has some longtime political hands uh, working his campaign. That includes Steve Schmidt. Uh, he's a former prominent Bush and McCain strategist and campaign manager. Uh, you might recognize him from MSNBC. He switched to the Democratic side during the Trump era. He was deeply involved in the launch of the campaign. He then went to go launch a super PAC for uh, Dean Phillips to raise money. Now, Dean Phillips' campaign is being run by Bernie Sanders's former campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, who is not a fan of Joe Biden. Remember, he ran against him in 2020. So uh, Phillips has some people behind him. Again, it's a long shot of long shot of long shot bids. It's all a generational argument. But that's sort of where things are. So we're going to watch the GOP primary today, see how close Haley can come in. And on the Dem side, we'll be watching this write-in campaign. The issue Biden faces, though, is if you're an independent and you know you can vote today, well, on the Republican side, it matters much more than like, why should I go vote on the D side and write in Biden's name? It's not really a question of whether, whether he's going to be the nominee. So that will be an argument. Dems will say, like, listen, the people who would have voted for Biden went to go play ball on the R side today anyway for Haley. So that's just one of the storylines to watch tonight. And we should mention, of course, we will have ongoing coverage, including uh, one of our producers is in the field today in New Hampshire um, all day long over on the Mo News Instagram feed. So stay tuned there and join Mo News Premium over at mo.news slash premium for all the extra insider information. Okay, now to a major headline when it comes to energy. The U.S. is now officially producing more oil a day than any country in history. What? The latest numbers from late last month show that U.S. oil production has surged to a new record of 13.3 million barrels a day. The prior record was 13.2 million barrels a day that was hit in November, and it is above the pre-pandemic high of 13.1 million barrels reached in February of 2020. So production, if you remember, collapsed during the height of COVID. The world shut down. And it has steadily been rising again for about four years. The U.S. is the largest oil producer in the world, surpassing Russia's nine and a half million barrels a day. That's their production rate. And well ahead of Saudi Arabia's daily production of 9.1 million barrels a day. It's surprising because when you think oil, you think Saudi Arabia. You may not even necessarily think Russia, but Saudi Arabia is synonymous with oil. And now I want you to think much more about Texas and New Mexico. Right. So the International Energy Agency saying in its latest report, U.S. oil supply growth continues to defy expectations. What's really impressive about the steady surge in U.S. oil production is the fact that the weekly U.S. oil rig count remains well below the 2014 peak of more than 1,600 rigs. Less than a third of the rigs are still active. We're talking about just 500 or so active oil rigs in the United States last week. And what that shows is how efficient America's energy industry has become. And it is helping the price of gas. The national average standing at about $3.07 per gallon. 29 states are seeing prices at the pump below $3 a gallon. 
The last time that happened was in 2021. Yeah, the notable thing here, we always talk about OPEC, right? The major oil production nations led by Saudi Arabia, Iran, Libya, and their hold on the global oil market, and that they'll cut production to get prices higher, etc. They recently expanded into something called OPEC+, Plus, which includes OPEC countries, plus countries like Russia, Mexico, trying to control the price of oil. But based on these latest numbers, based on just the gangbusters oil production happening in the U.S., Right now, the U.S., combined with other non-OPEC members, so that's Canada, Brazil, and Guyana, that's a country in northern South America, the global oil supply that OPEC plus controls is just 48%, meaning 52%, the majority of oil in the world now produced by non-OPEC countries. Now, keep in mind, Jill, you mentioned the 13 million barrels a day being produced in the U.S. Just bear in mind that our consumption today is 20 million barrels a day. So we're also one of the largest consumers of oil in the world. So uh, while we're producing a record amount, it still is uh, millions of barrels short of where we need to be, hence why, for a variety of reasons, we still buy foreign oil. Now, this is great news, and you might be wondering to yourself, why have I not heard about this? Why is this not a major headline? Well, for two reasons. One, Republicans like to use the energy issue to hit Democrats over the head, saying we could be doing more. So they continue to say more can be done, more can be done. The Democrats are anti-energy. At the same time, the White House hasn't really pushed back on this. Why? Well, you have a lot of climate-minded voters in the Democratic base. And so they're not going to say this too loudly. They're sort of whispering like, hey, you know, we're producing a lot of oil here <laughs> because they don't want the environmentalists to piss them off. So so, so suddenly you're between a rock and a hard place, so to speak, for the White House because you want to fight back against the Republicans, but you don't want to upset your own base by saying, you know, on our watch, we're producing more oil than ever. So Republicans continue to accuse the White House of waging war on U.S. energy production. Trump is out there saying the first thing he's going to do when he gets into office next year, if he wins, is drill, baby, drill. When in fact, it appears oil production is, uh, you know, hitting new record highs here. Now, it does come, by the way, the Biden administration has tried to place some restrictions on drilling. They have uh, paused new auctions on the rights to drill on publicly owned lands. Uh, they put new rules requiring oil and gas producers uh, to cut methane emissions. They've limited some offshore drilling, though we should note that uh, for the most part, vast majority of the oil in the U.S. comes from private land not public government-owned lands. So the government has little to no control over that. And by the way, we should mention the Biden White House has approved a number of major drilling projects. That includes the Willow Project up in Alaska. That is a massive and controversial project when it comes to the Democratic base, when it comes to environmentalists. So White House here in a difficult place, but something you should all know. Mosh, we read between the lines, so you don't have to. <laughs> we find the headlines <laughs> that no one wants to talk about. Republicans are like, what do you mean? And Democrats are like, shh. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> and we're like, lead story. <laughs> U.S. producing more let's, oil. Let's talk about this. But it's um, it's fascinating uh, sign of the times here. And if you look at the chart, we hit a point in the mid-2000s, so late Bush, early Obama there, where production had plummeted. We were at less than 5 million barrels a day. And uh, there's been a concerted effort through Obama, through Trump, to uh, really boost that. And look at where we are today. So uh, it does come, of course, as there's you know discussions of climate change and incorporating clean energy. And yet we've never produced as much oil and natural gas as we have today. So it's certainly something we'll, we'll keep discussing here on the pod. Okay, time now for a quick word from a couple of our sponsors. We're always talking about health trends and food trends here on the podcast, and it can be hard to get all of your nutrients. Well, one way to get all of the important ones is Athletic Greens AG1 Powder. 
It is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy and quick, and it lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. And it also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. I started drinking AG1 months ago. I like to think of it as kind of an insurance policy. No matter what I eat for the rest of the day, I'm covered. It's not an excuse to eat bad for the rest of the day, but it is nice to know. Uh, One of my friends, actually, who is a big AG1 user had told me that. Okay, so with your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read. Let's start with a decision from the Supreme Court about the border. From the Washington Post, the Supreme Court sided with the federal government over the state of Texas on Monday, clearing the way for Border Patrol agents to immediately remove razor wire that was installed by Texas officials along a busy stretch of the southern border. That is until the legality of the barriers is officially resolved in court. And this case is one of several legal battles between Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott and the Biden administration over the governor's border crackdown called Operation Lone Star. And it comes at a time of rising tension over how to handle hundreds of thousands of migrants who have entered this country illegally in recent months. And the federal government here is arguing that, wait, We know it's precedent here in America that the federal government controls the border. States do not control the border. This is a national thing, not a state thing. So uh, this is among the many legal fights. And so ultimately what you had here is a Supreme Court case, an emergency action here, where we don't have exactly the majority's explanation here. Oftentimes, you will not see reasoning. You'll just see a ruling with these emergency actions while something is being still adjudicated at a lower court. It is notable, though, that four conservatives did dissent on this. Clarence Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh all dissented on this opinion, uh, allowing the feds to take down Texas's razor wire. So that does present questions about where some of the conservative thought is right now on the supremacy clause. The supremacy clause being the federal government takes supremacy over the states on certain matters like the border. That's something we'll keep tracking here, but it does come, again, as we've told you, of this huge fight happening with a record number of migrants coming across the border. Earlier this month, federal officials said Texas National Guard personnel blocked border patrol from a section of the Rio Grande. Texas sued the Biden administration last year to prevent agents from removing or cutting the wire barriers. And so you have this win here for the Biden administration. Uh, But the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is still weighing the larger legal questions about the federal role here versus the state role. There are going to be oral arguments next month on February 7th. The Texas Attorney General uh, is protesting this decision. So ultimately, this whole issue could end up back at the Supreme Court. But for now, the feds can cut some of the uh, razor wire down that Texas has put up. From CNN and the fallout of that Alaska Airlines incident last month, the FAA is now recommending that airlines inspect the door plugs on certain Boeing 737s that are older than the MAX 9 jetliner that suffered the blowout. The FAA said the door plugs on one older version of the 737 called the 737-900ER 
are identical in design to those of the MAX 9. And some airlines have, quote, noted findings with bolts during the maintenance inspections. The FAA issued a safety alert on Sunday. So as soon as possible, they say airlines should visually inspect four places where a bolt, nut, and pin secure the door plug to the plane. The door plugs are panels that seal holes that are left for extra doors when the number of seats is not enough to trigger a requirement for more emergency evacuation exits. From inside the plane, they look just like a regular window. Yeah, so they build these planes thinking, okay, there's room for an emergency door, but if your layout on the plane doesn't require the emergency door, they just put this plug in there uh, with a few bolts. And so right now the FAA is saying that these 737-900ERs, which by the way have logged about 4 million flights through the years, without any known issues involving the door plugs, should be inspected given what happened with the MAX 9. So as far as the airlines here that are relevant to all of us, United, Alaska, and Delta fly the 900 ERs. There's about 380 of them that have the door plugs. Alaska says it has begun inspecting uh, their 900 ERs, turned up no issues so far. United uh, is doing their reviews, no issues so far. And Delta is as well. None of them expect any issues on operations. But continuing fallout here after that Alaska incident. Heading overseas from Axios, Israel has given Hamas a proposal through Qatari and Egyptian mediators that includes up to two months of a pause in fighting as part of a multi-phase deal that would include the release of all remaining hostages held in Gaza. This is according to two Israeli officials. While the proposal does not include an agreement to end the war, it is the longest period of ceasefire that Israel has offered Hamas since the beginning of the war. More than 130 hostages are still being held in Gaza. Israeli officials say several dozen hostages either died on October 7th or in the weeks since then. Qatari and Egyptian mediators have been trying for weeks to bridge the gaps between the Israelis and Hamas in order to make progress towards a deal. Yeah, so the Israelis say they're waiting for a response from Hamas, stress that they are cautiously optimistic. According to the proposal, the deal would include the release of all remaining hostages who are alive and the return of the bodies of dead hostages, it's believed that uh, there are about 30 of the hostages of the 130 are dead, according to the latest Israeli intelligence. Under the deal, Israel and Hamas would agree in advance how many Palestinian prisoners would be released for every Israeli hostage. Uh, last time, Hamas demanded three uh, prisoners for every hostage. Uh, remains to be seen what it would be this time around. The Israelis say that they are willing to redeploy the Israeli military out of the main population centers in Gaza as part of the deal here. The Israelis do maintain that they will not agree to an end to the war entirely here, but this is a two-month pause, pretty significant, 60 days. The Israelis say they will also not release all 6,000 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. Uh, some of those, by the way, include some senior Hamas officials. And it comes as the Israeli government has been under increasing pressure from families of hostages. From the Associated Press, dozens of family members of hostages held by Hamas stormed a committee meeting in Israel's parliament on Monday, demanding a deal to win their loved one's release. The Hamas terror group has said it will free more captives only in exchange for a permanent end to the war and the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners, including senior terrorists that are in Israeli prisons. Netanyahu has ruled out such an agreement, but anger is rising among hostages, families, relatives and other protesters set up a tent camp outside of Netanyahu's home in Jerusalem, vowing to stay there until a deal is reached. On Monday, dozens of family members of the hostages stormed into a gathering of the Knesset's finance committee, holding up signs and yelling, you won't sit here while they are dying there. 
Some had to actually be physically restrained, and at least one person was escorted out. Yeah, so the prime minister did meet with them after that. He said there isn't a deal from Hamas, but of course, as we're reporting here, it appears the Israelis have now sent a deal to Hamas. So it remains to be seen uh, what happens there. We should note that today marks 109 days in captivity. The families are desperate. They want the government to consider whatever it can do to bring home their loved ones. And it does come as there's a, a very robust debate we told you about on yesterday's podcast happening internally. Um, Israelis that wanted to all stand united uh, through this war. Some of them are saying that they do feel the need to protest here, that they don't support some of the strategies uh, the government is taking to bring home their loved ones. We should remind everybody that about 100 hostages were released in November as part of a deal. And there's an ongoing debate within Israel. One side, represented by the prime minister, saying the harder they hit Hamas, the more willing they will be to hand over hostages. And then others saying, well, the only way we've seen hostages come home so far is through a ceasefire, is through negotiation. So that continues to be a back and forth. And then the other side then says, well, why do you think that negotiation happened? Because we hit them really hard. And so that's the debate that's happening internally. But you have to you know, feel for these families. And they are uh, taking increasingly vocal measures here to ensure that the government is doing whatever it can to bring people home. Staying overseas from the Washington Post, an estimated 1.4 million people hit the streets this weekend, turning out to protest a far-right group in Germany for their mass deportation plans. In all, there were demonstrations in about 100 different locations across Germany. People are protesting the far-right Alternative for Germany party. They are calling for a ban on the party. Some protesters carrying posters that say things like defend democracy and Nazis out. Not only politicians, but also churches urging people to stand up against the AFD. The wave of mobilization against the far-right party was sparked by a January 10th investigation, which revealed that party members had discussed the expulsion of immigrants and, quote, non-assimilated citizens at a meeting with extremists. Yeah, this obviously resonates in Germany. The idea of sending people to a model state in Africa was also discussed at this meeting among far-right parties. It's similar to plans that Nazis had discussed back in the 1940s to deport Jews to Madagascar and other ideas um, ahead of then moving ahead with extermination. So in Germany, uh, there's a lot of sensitivity to this for obvious reasons. This anti-immigration party confirmed, by the way, that they were present at this meeting, but they denied some of the more extreme positions saying, no, 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 we don't agree with some of that stuff. Nevertheless, the gathering has sent shockwaves across the country at a time when this alternative for Germany party is soaring in opinion polls just months ahead of elections in Germany. Right now, they're polling at about 22 percent just behind the conservative opposition party by only about single digits. And it does come as approval ratings right now for the center left governing coalition. Uh, remember, it's a parliamentary democracy there. Uh, their approval ratings have plummeted to record lows amid budget crisis, high cost of living and a debate over migration. So uh, there's a lot of concern among the left and even centrists in Germany about the far right. Uh, leading politicians, uh, including the chancellor, Olaf Scholz, he leads that current governing coalition. He was out there in the demonstrations last weekend saying that any plan to expel immigrants or citizens alike is an attack against our democracy and all of us. He urged everyone in Germany to take a stand for cohesion and tolerance. Uh, and you mentioned, Jill, uh, the calls to ban a party that is a thing in Germany. Like, for example, the Nazi party is banned in Germany. Again, given their experience in World War II, they do put certain limits on, on speech and politics there, given what took place 80 years ago. 
Okay, on to the economy from Bloomberg. U.S. workers getting smaller bonuses, a sign that belt-tightening employers are not as concerned about losing talent as in recent years. The average cash bonus paid to employees last month was $2,145, down about 21% from the previous year. This is according to the payroll software company Gusto. Every industry posted a decline, ranging from 3.8% for tech firms to 36% for tourism and transportation companies. Not only were bonuses smaller, but fewer workers got them in most industries. 16 out of the 22 industries tracked by Gusto saw declines in the share of workers that received any sort of bonus. The biggest drop came in the arts and entertainment industry. We should note, by the way, Gusto mainly manages smaller businesses. So this is an indication of kind of where startups and smaller businesses in the U.S. are. Several factors, they believe, drove the double-digit decline here in bonuses. Businesses are not hiring as aggressively as they were a year ago at a time when inflation was skyrocketing and workers were quitting. Remember that last year, businesses had to dole out more generous compensation packages. That appears to be uh, not so much the case anymore. The biggest payouts still going to finance workers, boutique investment firms, not surprisingly. Bonuses in the tech sector dropped uh, about $700 uh, from a couple of years ago. Of course, there's been a lot of tech layoffs in the past couple of years. And so after a couple of years here where it's very much been a worker's economy and you can get whatever you want, it appears there's some tightening happening. And finally, Mosh from today.com, families are embracing a new trend, scruffy hospitality. What does this mean? Okay, it is the idea that even if your home obviously looks like it's not perfect or lived in, you still welcome visitors with open arms. So if a friend says that they're going to stop by, instead of frantically trying to clean up the bathroom, dump the dishes in the dishwasher, shove all the miscellaneous items into closets or junk drawers, you just leave it and let people see how you really live. The idea is that this is just a deeper level of intimacy because you're letting friends into your real, real life. Today.com spoke to mom coach Stephanie Rosenfield. Um, She said, we need to banish the idea that a messy house means that we are failing at parenthood. As parents, we are bound to have stacks of homework folded, but not put away laundry and Legos everywhere. And often when guests see those things, instead of clutching their pearls about the mess, they feel better. They feel a sense of camaraderie. She says that we are all in this together. Do I need a mom coach? I don't even know what's going on here. With- yeah, I'm hung up on that, uh, that they quoted a mom coach, Jill. I don't think you need a mom coach. I, I It seems to me you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I, I Is that a, is she like a therapist or? I, listen, I think everyone deserves a coach. And if you need a coach, like, you know, all the more power to you. Jill, I'll never be a judge if you hire a mom coach. Mosh, I'm with you. I'm all for self-improvement. <laughs> so anyway, back to scruffy hospitality here. Jill, this sort of you know, reminds me of anytime you have people come over, you're like, throw it all in the bedroom. Nobody <laughs> will go in. Like, throw it all in the closet. Uh, but apparently now, you know, coming off of the pandemic, coming off of spending a lot of time on Zoom and showing people our, you know, not so clean homes, we've become more accustomed to this. We've become more comfortable with this. There's also pushback, by the way, on the like idyllic perfect homes that we saw on social media for years. You know, suddenly you now see people giving tours of their messy homes on TikTok, apparently. I haven't done that, but according to the story, some people have. And so people are tired of social media perfection, uh, have shown everyone everything on Zoom. And so now they're showing it to everyone in person. And so this is where we're at. And uh, I'm all for it. We're not all Martha Stewart here. Look, especially when you have kids, there's just so neat that you're going to be able to get your house anyway. 
All right, now time for On This Day in History. We begin in 1849. Geneva Medical College bestowed a medical degree upon Elizabeth Blackwell. She was the first woman in the U.S. to receive a medical degree. She did this amid near uniform opposition from her fellow students, from medical professionals who are like, women cannot be doctors. But she uh, had an iron will and went up against this wall and was determined to become a doctor. So, of course, she would get the first medical degree. She would open up a clinic for the poor in New York City there in the 1850s. They would train a whole bunch of doctors for the Civil War at the time. She would eventually work in London as well. Uh, Fast forward, Jill, in 2017, for the first time ever, a majority of medical students in the U.S. were women, and that's continued for the last couple of years. On this day in 1941, Charles Lindbergh, a national hero at the time for his nonstop solo flight across the Atlantic, testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee and suggested to Congress that the U.S. negotiate a neutrality pact with Hitler. He had become enamored with Hitler at the time. Lindbergh, by the way, was known for his anti-Semitic feelings. He felt that the British, the Jews, Roosevelt were all trying to get into war with the Nazis. He's like, the Nazis aren't so bad. We should stay um, isolationist. There was actually talk at certain points that Lindbergh might run for president against Roosevelt. And he represented nearly half the country at that point, did not want to get involved in the war. Remember, we wouldn't get involved. The U.S. would not get involved in World War II until, of course, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And then even then was only going to get involved in Asia. But the Nazis declared war on the U.S., thereby bringing the U.S. into the European side of the war. So I wanted to mark that, a a notable uh, sort of sign of the times of where the U.S. was at just months before Pearl Harbor. Moshe, have you ever read The Plot Against America by Philip Roth? I have. Takes us through that alternate history scenario. One of our favorite genres, Jill, alternate history. Yes. I, I, yeah. I don't know why I asked, have you read it? Because I, if I read it, you definitely read it. <laughs> and it is, as you mentioned, just kind of this idea of, of what would have happened had Lindbergh run for president and won and, and how different things would have been. And it, it's told from the perspective of a a young Jewish boy in, in New Jersey. And it is fascinating how seemingly minor decisions really alter the shape of history. People choosing to run or not run for president and elections matter, as we know here. On to some lighter things. On this day in 1957, the Frisbee was released. The Whammo Toy Company introduced its aerodynamic plastic disc. So happy birthday to the Frisbee today. And we end with pop culture as always on this day 81 years ago, Casablanca came out starring Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, premiered in theaters in the middle of World War II there in 1943. Here's looking at you, kid. (laughs) So many good lines in that film. And then we fast forward to the 1980s, turning 40 years old today. Thriller! Thriller (laughs) night. And then on this day, just one year later, turning 39 years old today... Madonna released her song Material Girl, Jill, on this day in 1985. And the Material Girl currently on tour and um, upsetting many of her fans because she's apparently showing up like hours late for her concert. Upsetting some fans, we should say, and apparently two fans that were so upset that she showed up so late in New York. They're suing her for how much they had to spend to go home. Caught that lawsuit earlier this week. I don't know what's going to end up there. But I guess Madonna's known, Jill, for showing up several hours late to her shows these days. Beyonce also has a reputation for that. All right. In case anybody is waiting for this podcast to end before you go to work or whatnot, we don't want you to be late. So we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It really helps us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
and give us a review in the App Store. And if you like what we're doing here on the pod, if you like the newsletter, if you like the Instagram account and you want to support us, join Mo News Premium over at mo.news slash premium to give you extra access to extra episodes, interviews, as well as our members-only Instagram account where we answer your questions daily. You can find all of that for just $7 a month over at mo.news slash premium. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.